We live in a Bible-haunted nation. Like, Scripture is everywhere. It has shaped the language that we go to for our political life. And us not understanding where it comes from and why is a problem. We should really evaluate where it's coming from. A good example being the concept of a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill. You know, people have used that, politicians have used that since before Reagan. I mean, JFK was the first one to use it. Everyone prior to Trump used at some point this phrase that America is a shining city on a hill. Hillary Clinton even referred to it as Reagan's shining city on a hill. So suddenly it's his, you know, phrase. But that language... To a lot of people, they're not even aware that it's from the Bible, let alone that it comes from a particular context, from the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea that Jesus is just obviously talking about this nation is not an obvious idea to anyone except for people who come from this particular place and this legacy and use it in this kind of way. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, and with me today is Abby Miller, who will be my co-host for the day. Hey, Abby. Hey, how are you doing? Doing all right. How are you? I'm good. Longtime listeners of the podcast might recognize her voice from back in the day when we did some additional episodes around resourcing. And one of our most popular episodes was a conversation about the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, still one of our most popular episodes that we've ever done, probably because it was a podcast about a really popular podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Didn't mean that, but here we are. Yeah, exactly right. Anyway, today our conversation is about politics. We're going to be talking about politics and congregational life. And before you shut it off, (laughs) we're going to handle this really easily, really well. We are not taking sides, but rather having a conversation essentially partially about just how politics shows up in congregational life. But our interview later on with Caitlin Shess, it really details how we can think about politics in a way that helps move our congregations forward in that conversation as opposed to the polarization. So, Abby, how does the topic of politics show up in your work with congregations? Honestly, in the last few years, I have talked to so many pastors, clergy leaders, and lay leaders who are just tired, honestly, around the Mm -hmm. topics of politics, all that that includes. And so, yeah, that's what I'm seeing, some burnout around the topic, some just questions around how do we deal with congregations there can be such a diverse belief system in their Mm -hmm. politics. So yeah, pastors and lay leaders are in a tough spot right now. Yeah, I've had some of those similar conversations with folks that I've encountered and just the sense that, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but congregations, to me at least, seemed to be relatively homogenous political spaces, meaning that everybody who attended a given congregation was kind of roughly in the same ballpark politically And you didn't get a whole lot of political disagreement, but then here comes 2016, 2017, Mm -hmm. 2018 and on. And that is no longer the case. And, you know, mask wearing became politicized and that became a big sticking point for a lot of congregations. And so, yeah, I hear the fatigue 
but also some congregations and not necessarily reaching out directly to us, but just lamenting the fact that like, we're not sure how to handle this. Mm -hmm. We really don't know how to manage the fact that we have people in our congregation with such diverse political opinions and we really need to figure out some guidance going forward. Exactly. Yeah. So we're excited about the interview that we have today with Caitlin Schess. She wrote a book called The Liturgy of Politics. If you're an avid podcast listener, you may have heard her on the Holy Post podcast, but just an incredibly bright person who Mm. is in her doctoral program and just has so many interesting things to say about so much of society. She's one of those people that is truly an academic, but can bring academia to bear on modern questions and modern issues of theology, of faith, of congregational life. And so I just, I appreciate as a listener to the Holy Post podcast, who she is, and just a wonderful conversation with her about the ideas in her book. And I think you'll be encouraged about how you can think about politics in your congregational space in a different way, Mm -hmm. and maybe begin incorporating some elements to be able to change the landscape and really kind of reclaim your community for what it needs to be. Yeah. I think one of the gems of this conversation is figuring out how to make it practical. What does talking about politics look like in our congregations in a way that doesn't bring divisiveness, but brings people together? And one of the things that she walks us through is what does that look like? So yeah, it was a good conversation. Absolutely. We hope you enjoy it as well. So next up is author, speaker, and podcaster, Caitlin Chess. All right, everybody. Welcome back. We are so pleased to have Caitlin Shess with us. She is an author, a podcaster, and a doctoral student. So welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Glad you're here. So Caitlin is the author of a book called The Liturgy of Politics. And that's one of the key reasons why we wanted to have her on this. I mean, if you listen to the Holy Post podcast, you're familiar with her and her work, which covers a broad spectrum of which I'm a big fan of of everything that is talked about. But we're going to focus in specifically today on the liturgy of politics and just what that means. And so Caitlin, I think a good starting point for a lot of our audience would just be how you understand those terms, because I think that kind of sets the stage for the general conversation. Yeah, I have also found that that's just true, that both of those words are kind of tricky (laughs) words to just use without defining. When I talk about politics, I use it in a pretty broad sense. In fact, a lot of times when I'm talking to churches or college students, I'll show them a picture of what I think they probably think I mean by politics, which is like a congressperson, a judge, you know, going to a voting booth, Mm -hmm. checking a box. And then I show them another picture of people eating around a table, a city street, someone writing a book, which is like the work that I do, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to broaden out and say politics, the way that I use it means building a common life together. Mm. My advisor in my doctoral program, Luke Brotherton, who's written a lot about this, he talks about politics as the forming, norming, and sustaining of a common life together. So I love those three words because it includes both kind of structural questions. We do need laws and elected officials. There needs to be some structure to our common life together, even on a really local level, right? There are people that have different authorities in the places that we live. But then there's also questions of like the stories that we tell to make sense of that authority structure or why we live our common life the way we live it. Even just the relationships we have. I talk a lot of times with people about the relationship you have with your neighbors is political in the sense that hopefully you have a strong enough relationship that certain authorities don't need to be called in unless they're absolutely necessary. If there's a dispute, it doesn't always require the highest level of authority. So it's it's building a common life together. And that is in contrast, I think, to just partisanship or partisan 
interacting in politics, which is to say a certain loyalty that could be appropriate or could become inappropriate to a political party, policies that really we disagree on or have conflict over. Politics includes that question, but a lot of times when people say, oh, I don't want politics in my church or I don't want politics at the dinner table, what they usually mean is partisan politics. We don't want to fight over our identifying with a certain political party or a policy we disagree with. But politics is a part of our whole lives. We really can't avoid it. You know, the school that your kids go to, the districting, the decisions that are made, the neighborhood you live in, the price that your groceries cost, like all of these are political things that impact all of our lives. And similarly, I think liturgy for a lot of people, they think of a pretty narrow definition. If they come from a tradition that has a set liturgy, they think, okay, this is the liturgy for my church. We have these kinds of things we do in this order at this time in the service, these words we use. And that's definitely part of what liturgy means. But when I was writing about the liturgy of politics, I wanted to broaden that again and say, we have all kinds of liturgies in our lives together, as in embodied, repetitive, habitual things we do that shape and form us. I just this morning took my parents' dog. I'm at my parents' house, took my parents' dog for a walk. He knows the route (laughs) that they take in their neighborhood. He has a habit about where they walk and the people they interact with and the playground that's across the street that's near a school. And so those kinds of things are media consumption habits, the habits we get into with the places we go in our neighborhood and the kinds of people we interact with. All of those are liturgies in the sense that they involve our bodies, they're repetitive, and they help impart to us a larger story. I think that's the important element here is in our churches, we're conscious of this. We make decisions about how we do things together that are resonant with the larger story that we believe about the world and what's ultimately true and good. We do that in our regular lives too, like our media consumption habits, our habits of where we shop and where our kids go to school, those have implicit in them larger stories about what's good and true and what a good human life looks like. Mm -hmm. And we can be kind of unaware sometimes of how those stories are shaping us and forming us, even in really powerful ways that we might be unaware of. Mm -hmm. It's super helpful that we started out with the explanation of those terms because I don't think very often we hear those terms together. Mm. And so I'm interested in talking more about what does it look like when a church practices the liturgy of politics? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, part of what I wanted to do is both say, okay, let's evaluate the liturgies that we are taking in in our everyday life, even outside of church. We might think this word is limited to church, but this is our whole lives. But then to also ask of our practices in churches, Do the practices and habits of this particular people confront those practices and habits that shape in us wrong stories, or do they actually just go along with them? An example being, and I was careful in the book, you know, I come from a particular tradition, but I wanted the book to be useful to people from a variety of denominations. And so there's a chapter in particular on the sacraments. And I was really kind of trying to be careful to say, I want this to be useful for people who have a very different (laughs) view of these than I do. Mm -hmm. But I think we all could benefit from asking are the ways that we do these things together, the songs we sing, the words we use, the ways that we observe communion and baptism, do they push back against the stories in the world that tempt us to think what's most important is my financial success, or I'm ultimately an individual atomized person in the world free to make my own decisions, or what matters most is my security or the prosperity of my country or my racial identity. You know, Do all of these different practices that we have Without realizing it, could they just reinforce those stories or could they confront them? And one practical example is, you know, I was working at a church in Dallas when I was in seminary 
and it was hard. I worked in children's ministry. So like, I really struggled to get into a Sunday service because there was always, you know, volunteers that Mm -hmm. were sick or messes that needed to be cleaned up. And so I started going to a different church on Sunday evenings just to kind of have a service that I could go to. And it was a lovely church and no one will ever be able to figure out what it is. (laughs) I'm saying anything critical about them, but I realized every week they did communion in this very particular way where they kind of, they let you at any point you wanted to during this particular span of time while some music was playing and the lights were brought really low, you could find a little spot where they had the elements and just have your own little moment with Jesus is how they described it. And I just remember thinking, like, I think this is actually a pretty American individual way of thinking about this sacrament. Like everything that we're doing, not just how we're explicitly describing what we're doing, but even the other elements of the music's pretty loud and it's pretty dark. So I could believe no one else is really here. It's really tailored to an individual experience. And so that's an example of, I'm sure the people who designed it that way had really good intentions about fostering this moment for people to connect with Christ. And yet it was a missed opportunity to have a practice of the church confront the American individual gospel that says it's about you and it's just what your needs are met. That's what's most important about church. And and it was a moment to say, could we evaluate like what story that we uniquely have needs to be told in our habits and practices together that really confronts that? I even think about the practice of baptism. I mentioned in the book, the practice really having an impact on racial relations in the 60s. There's an example of Richard Mao talking about, my church made a statement recently on race relations, which, you know, we wouldn't use that phrase today, but in the 60s when he did, it made sense. And he said, we baptized a young black man into our congregation. And our understanding of baptism means that he now belongs to us and we belong to him. And if people are mistreating him, that puts a demand on us. You know, suddenly it changes the kind of political identity of the church to say, I don't know, this is no longer an abstract political issue. He belongs to us. We performed this really important practice and that put obligations and demands upon us. And so that's the kind of thing where that's true, but are we reflecting that that's true in the way that we practice it and the way we talk about it? And it might not be a massive change. I'm not asking anyone to kind of adopt a different tradition or denominations practices, but to just evaluate. Are we missing opportunities to confront the stories that are so powerful in the world that we are being shaped and formed by them much more often in our regular lives than the particular liturgies of the church once a week? Are we missing an opportunity for them to be as powerful as they have been for Christians around the world and across time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm interested if you have thoughts on how congregational leaders can begin to inspect their liturgies and inspect their, from your definition of politics, the more broad political systems or dynamics that are happening, how do you begin peeling back the layers to understand how your liturgies either support what they should be supporting from an orthodox theological perspective, however you understand that, or how they might be serving a narrative that's counter to what you intend to do? How do you begin that journey of discovery? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, part of the heart of this book was, you know, right after 2016, it felt like a lot of pastors in particular were kind of going, what do we do? (laughs) Like there's a political mess in the world. It's in our churches. There's division in our churches. And it felt like at the time, a lot of people thought we had to really reinvent the wheel. Like we need a new program. We need a new curriculum. We need, and those can be really good. My desire was to say, we have some resources. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And some of those are these practices. And the way you've just described it is exactly what I wanted to encourage people to do instead of let's start a brand new thing, which can have its own problems. (laughs) You know, like we can be really imprisoned by the urgency of this moment and not really be thoughtful about what this will mean in the future. I think even some people 
now 2024 thinking, I don't know that our response immediately after 2016 was as thoughtful because we were just thinking about what we need right now, not what will form us really long-term. And so I think spending some time evaluating, first of all, what are the habits outside of the church of the people in your church? And again, like writing a book, you have to write kind of generally, but my desire had always been, it's going to be the pastors, it's going to be the small group leaders, the people leading a Bible study, or just in the homes and lives of people in churches that will know what the need is here. And so spending some time going, what media sources pop up a lot in conversations with people in my church? When there are theological disagreements, have I dug a little deeper to see what larger kind of identity is underneath it? What questions of community and ultimate story is really kind of underneath the surface of this particular presenting political issue? So first spending time just thinking about what is the concern here? Because it could be a bunch of different things. I've had people read the book and say, you know, you're really mostly speaking to evangelical Christians, many of who have a particular legacy of political engagement with the Republican Party. But my church, that's not really the issue. But I have found some of these ideas helpful to apply to my own context where there's other political kind of idols that are tempting us. And so doing some work of just evaluating what's the concern here? What's the temptation? What story might we be tempted to believe? And then spending some time doing kind of like an audit of the way that your entire service goes. You know, I was talking a moment ago about the sacraments, but really thinking, what are the words we use regularly? I think a lot of churches miss the way that our songs in particular can be shaping mm. us. There was an article that came out maybe a year ago about how many of the Psalms talk about justice and yet how few of the most popular worship songs ever talk about justice. So doing an audit mm. of what language shapes us because the things we say or sing repeatedly have great power. They often are much more formative of our theology than a sermon, unfortunately, <laughs> for the people preaching the sermon, you know. So spending some time thinking about the language that we use, and then especially I think anything that involves our bodies, even if it's just we get up and move to receive communion or we kneel or this is the standing and the sitting. Anything that involves our bodies, you know, experts will tell us it is just much more formative. We remember it better. It shapes us more powerfully. So things that are repetitive, things that involve our bodies, and then also spending some time thinking specifically about the kind of community shaping moments, like what moments, not just in a service, but in the regular life of the church, most shape our relationships. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, I've been in a lot of churches where the generational divide is a really significant one and the political element of it is huge. Like we might all be sort of in the same space theologically, but where the younger people are politically is very different from where the older people are politically. So evaluating how often are we segregated by generations or by kind of life stage, people with kids or people without kids, people who are married or people who aren't. My church recently started doing Wednesday night supper in small groups. And we realized it was one of the few times in the whole life of the church that entire families of all various configurations were together. So for me, I'm a single person. I loved that I saw the women I had seen at women's ministry, but also their kids who I saw in the children's ministry and their husbands who I had served with, but I didn't know that that family all went together they, you know, exactly that way. And so spending some time thinking, what are our habits of meeting together? And are there certain kind of configurations of it that are more common than others? And how can we kind of confront those differences to bridge some differences, to bring some unity across differences that might be kind of difficult? And you just somewhat touched on this. As you know, we serve congregations in various denominations and various contexts. Can you speak more to how your context influences mm -hmm. how you walk this out? 
Yes. Yeah. That's so important. As you mentioned earlier, Matt, like I do a podcast and like this one, and it's like, it's so hard because on one hand, it's like, I want us to be as helpful as we can be. On the other hand, it feels like so many of the things we're talking about are so specific to a particular church and the needs of a particular congregation, especially when we're talking about politics. Because again, you know, I spent most of my growing up time in pretty conservative evangelical environments, both in churches and in the places I lived. I lived in Colorado Springs. I went to a conservative evangelical college and a conservative evangelical seminary. Dallas, Texas has a lot of that kind of, you know, so Southern conservative Christian environments. And what seemed like the threat there, the concern there was very different. I learned very well in those environments what I was worried about theologically or politically. And to be honest, it was pretty hard to imagine kind of a ditch on the other side of the road there. I'm in now a very progressive city, a little progressive dot in North Carolina and Durham and the influence of a big elite university. And so the concerns of the churches in that area across the theological spectrum are very different. I see a ditch on the other side of the road. I see concerns that I couldn't see in the place I was in before. And I think the encouragement I would give to people is not only to really focus, as you've said, on what are the concerns of the place that I'm in from the perspective of a diverse group of people. So not just kind of my perspective on what the problems are, but people who are in my same context, but have a different background, have different concerns they're thinking about. But then also use that kind of work you've done of discerning the context that you're in to shape who else you're listening to who's outside of it. Because you should listen to people outside of the context to get another perspective. But then having the ability to say, okay, you know, this person that writes books or does podcasts or gives great advice for pastors who's in a very different context, I'm going to take that with a little bit more of a grain of salt than someone who's coming from a similar context, even if they're coming from a different perspective, different background. And recognizing, I think this is just like the humility and the grace we have to have for other people. I mean, I see this happen on social media a lot. Someone who pastors in Oregon or in Washington state or has just a very different kind of political context will say, this is the concern. Like, this is the theological problem in our churches. And I'll go, it's the opposite. I can't imagine someone having, you know, the judgment that you have, but being conscious of actually like you're seeing an overemphasis or an overcorrection in the opposite direction of what I'm seeing. And it just is going to require a lot of humility for us to both learn from those people. I don't think you shut out those other perspectives in different contexts, but being able to discern, is that the right word for their people or is it the right word for my people? And those could be totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious because I think for me personally, as I've gone on my political journey, using the term in the more narrow sense that most people think about it, I got to the point where I felt like it didn't matter what I thought about the very high level discussions that were happening, <laughs> like the culture wars, like number one, no one cares what I have to say about it. And number two, the way that, you know, voting works in our nation, your votes at a local level are much more impactful than at a national level. And so I, I tried to kind of begin to bring my vision down to a different level. And I think if I'm hearing you right, like understanding politics in the right way is doing that and thinking about what are the specific needs desires, challenges of the community that I am a part of, and how do I go about dealing with that as opposed to how do I fix the world? Is that an accurate assessment of what you're describing? Yeah. And I actually think the way that you just said that at the end is so important of like, I'm not trying to change the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I do think part of, and this is again, a pretty American church problem, I think often, because we are sold stories of like, the one man against the world that changes everything, you know, these like grand stories of success and achievement. And that scale is just, it's not only 
largely unachievable. Very few people are going to change the world, which is just a wild like standard to put on yourself. But I also think it's actually what gets us in so many of the problems that we've seen. Hmm. Because if your goal is change the world, if the scale is that big, you can justify running over all sorts of people on the way to get there, cutting lots of corners, making compromises that shouldn't be made. The scale actually is not just kind of unrealistic. It's often the problem. It makes us have poor judgments about what is worth it and what faithfulness really looks like. And I often tell people, you know, I'm such a fan of like, no, care about politics, be engaged. And I've learned I have to be so careful in what I say because people often think, oh, I'll just watch a ton of C-SPAN or I'll read a bunch of newspapers or I'll be on Twitter for hours to see all of the things that are happening. And as you said, I think that's not only kind of a waste of our time very often. We do have limited resources in terms of time and money. And if we're focusing it on big national issues because it's kind of fun or sexy, we're really missing out on being involved in important local issues. But I also think it contributes to our polarization. At the big national level, it's very unlikely that you can be involved in the actual lives of people affected by policies. Even though national policies do affect people's lives, you're very likely engaging, as I've said before, on a kind of identity level or a whom I imagined community level is. So we disagree about national policy when it comes to immigration or housing or abortion, you know, hot button things. Oftentimes what's really happening is my sense of identity of what it means to be a good person who believes the right things is being threatened or the community that I think are the good guys that need to be defended against the bad guys that's being threatened versus on a local level, those big national identity issues can filter down. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen some of the school board fights in some places in the country. It does seem like the national thing is sort of being fed into this local issue. So that can happen. But I think it's a lot easier to find places of compromise when you're showing up at a city council meeting or in my local area, oftentimes it's a community organizing meeting in a local church. And you're saying, for example, very recently for us, we need someone who speaks Spanish to be involved in housing disputes in our city. We might totally disagree about housing issues or tax issues or where you know affordable housing should be built. But even across wide political difference, we can agree that people who are most vulnerable to being taken advantage of by these housing disputes because they don't speak English deserve someone to advocate for them. And we can come together and push the city to do that. And so all of our kind of feelings about lots of things, our sense of identity and community will be involved there. But I think it's a lot easier to see what I mean in terms of this isn't partisan, but this is seeking the good of the community that I'm in when we're talking about such a specific local issue versus what most people ask me when I show up to talk about this, which is who should I vote for for president? And I'm just like, I'm not interested in that question. <laughs> That's not unimportant, mm-hmm. but it is definitely, you know, way down the list of the judges in your area that will affect the most vulnerable people, the city council members, the school board members, or just again, the things that can be advocacy issues that can be show up to a meeting or write a letter or make a phone call that someone with power who's going to listen to you over maybe the vulnerable person who's most affected by this could actually change right then and there. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that I was thinking about as you were sharing that is this change to the world idea leads to burnout. Yes. When we are so focused on these huge issues that our one little vote matters, but may not have as much impact in, it leads to burnout as well as information overload. When our uh, focus is, you know, we'll just watch C-SPAN, we'll take in all of Twitter, or I guess it's X now. (laughs) 
you know, taken all that information and then we're left feeling like we have information overload and we're not sure of the impact we made in any of this. And so focusing on the local level seems more practical. It seems like a small step that has impact. What are you seeing and noticing in terms of burnout and the conversation around politics in the church. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good observation because I think that's a big part of it because when we're burnt out, we're not going to be our healthiest selves in conversation with people. So if you have some bad media consumption habits, which is a big thing I talk about, and I I really encourage people to do an audit, like I said before about churches, but to do a personal audit of what are my media consumption habits, not just how much, Like I think looking at your screen time is a great idea, but really sitting down and making a list of where and what time of the day and really kind of asking yourself some hard questions about the emotional space you're in before and after media consumption. It's been a game changer for me to just write down every time I open the X, I guess now, app and ask what feeling am I feeling when I open this? Like what anger am I looking to express What loneliness Mm -hmm. am I looking to heal here or what kind of comfort am I trying to get? And just writing it down and being honest with myself forces me to go, okay, we have learned a habit here of coming to this thing with the wrong motivation, the wrong desire. And even just being cognizant of that over a while allows you to evaluate how you could change that. So I really encourage people, do over a week every single kind of media that you consume. And I don't just mean news. I mean the movies you watch, the podcasts you listen to, the books you read. Do an audit and not only look at what and what sources, but when. I realized I had gotten in a really bad habit of checking Twitter and listening to a news podcast first thing in the morning before almost anything else. And it was like, Mm -hmm. that sets my day in a different direction than if it starts with a more healthier, calmer approach to things. So I think it is partially about evaluating when and where and how, because I don't think the answer is you stop paying attention to the news or you don't keep yourself engaged with what's happening, but how and under what conditions and having someone who can keep you accountable in that is really good going, Hey, you know, spouse, friend, pastor, whatever, here's the audit I did of myself. Could you be honest with me? (laughs) Like, what do you see that's bad in here that I might not be honest with myself about both for the sake of looking at how might I be shaped and formed? Am I really getting my news all from one source? Am I listening to things that tend to be more fearful or angry? But also then to ask, is this too much? Am I going to burn myself out? What's a healthier habit for really consuming news, engaging with it in a way that doesn't put me in a place where by the time I get to the dining room table, I'm ready to burst and I will fight with someone in a way that I'm not, I'm not my best self in, you know? So having that kind of communal focus too of, This isn't just about, am I doing the right thing for myself in terms of what I consume and when, but is this serving my larger community or does it make me into the kind of person that really isn't contributing to a better community? Mm -hmm. That's hard because it takes self-awareness and some critical thinking that is sometimes very challenging, but always worthwhile. Yeah. And I have a question, I think somewhat related to that, and it may not seem like it is initially, but is there a place for popular media in congregational liturgy? And I mean both of those Mm. things in a very broad sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious what you mean by popular media. Well, we've mentioned several times throughout this conversation about the importance of storytelling. And I think as a culture, Mm. Western Americans don't take stories very seriously. I think we think of almost any story as just entertainment, but we forget that human imagination since as far as recorded history stretches 
has been shaped by stories. Stories tell us about who we are, about our place in culture, about our place in the world, and potentially even about our place in the universe. And I think we've taken that for granted and we just look at it as, you know, whatever you stream is just whatever you stream and it really doesn't have much yeah. to do with your life. Yeah. And it just, it struck me that if we were paying attention to the same stories, and I say just popular media, I'm falling into the same trap of looking at stories as like, well, it's just stories. It's not, right? Yeah. But if we consumed media together in community yeah. and potentially had at least just room in conversation that you know everyone's involved in the same things. I mean, I think we missed that when there used to be the big three networks of television. Mm. People had a lot of commonality in their conversation just because there were only three options for the media that you consume. And now it's just, you know, a la carte, whatever you feel like. But I'd be interested in a congregation thinking about how do we look at what's out there in popular media and say, hey, as a body, as a community, why don't we look at this and then reflect on it? And just giving the opportunity to start taking stories more seriously, because I think we've lost that. And that's kind of the impetus of the question is, do you feel like yeah. in the ways that you see this, is there room for that in congregational liturgy? Yeah. Oh, I really like that. I mean, I said this earlier, but it really is important to not just think about this in terms of explicitly political media. So many of the most powerful stories that we believe that have an impact on both our theology and the way that we engage in our communities come from the movies, the TV shows, the books that we read. You know, I wish more books, honestly, but mostly movies and TV shows. And it's interesting, you know, maybe a year ago, I was talking to a group of high schoolers at a Christian high school, and I'm not usually with high schoolers. Usually it's like college age or older. And I was a little nervous about how I was going to talk about it. I was really encouraged that their teachers wanted them to start thinking about this. But what I had decided beforehand to do was I would ask them to just talk about their favorite movies because I figured most of their favorite movies would probably play into one of the main things I wanted to talk about, one of the kind of false gospels that I think really shapes us in our political lives which is the prosperity gospel. Even for people who think, oh, that's a different <laughs> that's a different church than my church. Like, no, we really do often in America believe if you work hard, you're a good person, you do deserve health, wealth, and happiness, whether that's from God or the free market or the universe or whatever. But we do kind of believe that very often. And so I thought I was taking a gamble on asking them to talk about their favorite movies. Like maybe the movies they talk about won't follow that script. They won't really support my point very well. And all of them did, like easily. It was so easy once they all, everyone was excited to talk about their favorite movies. All of them were kind of underdog, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of stories about football or about school or about, you know, business. It was a great segue into talking about this. And it made me realize most of the time in church, what we think about engaging the blockbuster movie that's out or whatever, it's often as like a cheesy illustration, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Pete, Twitter loves making fun of this right now, you know, like, oh, you, you know, watch the Barbie movie or you watch the superhero movie or whatever, and you find some cheesy way to bring it back to Jesus. But as you've said, what if instead we took really seriously these things? They're not just kind of funny jokes to start your sermon with or an illustration that might make people kind of groan and laugh, but then they're paying attention. But instead saying, actually, this story that is really deeply shaping us, we should watch together, we should engage with, not only to just critique it, but to see a lot of the ultimate, you know, the gospel is the best story ever told. Is there some actual truth in here? And how could we not only just kind of didactically say, okay, here's the criticism and here's the true story and here's, but like, could we actually do that communally well together to help people learn how to discern it? Because one of the biggest questions that I want people to ask when it comes to media consumption are questions like, who does this paint as the bad guy? 
who's the good guy in this story, what's ultimately wrong with the world in this story, and what ultimately fixes it. And I think most importantly, what vision of the good life is in this? What does a good flourishing human life look like in this story? And then asking all of those questions of this piece of media and then saying, is that what the gospel says? Because it is powerful and enticing to watch a movie and go, wow, I think America is the answer to every problem in the world. (laughs) Or I think that, you know, the underdog finally achieving success, that's ultimately the story about the world. Like the good life is having all the money you need, having a beautiful house and two and a half kids and a dog and a picket fence. That's the good life, you know. Mm -hmm. But once you actually write that down or say it out loud in a small group, you realize that is not at all what scripture says the good life is. That's not Mm -hmm. what's ultimately wrong with the world. That's not the ultimate solution. But it's easy in the moment to actually have that really deeply form you? Have you really believed that on a level that you're not going to put in a church doctrinal statement or you're not going to admit to your pastor or your friend, but really is kind of what you believe about the world. But once you're sitting there in a small group of people talking about how that was described in this movie, it might actually be like a really good way to kind of confront some of those in a way that doesn't feel political in the way that people are afraid of, doesn't feel too confrontational. It's really easy to go, yeah, this movie really taught a wrong story about the world and have that hopefully be a gentle kind of inroad to, do we believe that? Is that something mm-hmm. we've been tempted to actually have our lives shaped and formed after? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A question that came to mind was how much does scriptural literacy affect what we're seeing in the church right now related to politics? Yes, this is like my favorite thing to think about right now. Um, I just spent the last kind of two years doing a ton of research into how scripture has been used in American political history for a book that's coming out in August called The Ballad in the Bible. And I really think both that even for Christians, this is really important for us to understand in terms of the habits we have of interpreting scripture come not just from our particular tradition or denomination, but from the American legacy of how we interpret it for political purposes, but then also for non-Christians to say, we live in a Bible-haunted nation. Like scripture is everywhere. It has shaped the language that we go to for our political life. And us not understanding where it comes from and why is a problem. We should really evaluate where it's coming from. A good example being the concept of a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill. You know, people have used that. Politicians have used that since before Reagan. I mean, JFK was the first one to use it. Everyone prior to Trump used at some point this phrase that America is a shining city on a hill. Hillary Clinton even referred Mm -hmm. to it as Reagan's shining city on a hill. So suddenly it's his, you know, phrase. But that language to a lot of people, they're not even aware that it's from the Bible, let alone that it comes from a particular context, from the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea that Jesus is just obviously talking about this nation is not an obvious idea to anyone except for people who come from Mm -hmm. this particular place and this legacy and use it in this kind of way. For non-Christians, it really is important to realize that this text has shaped so much of our political life. But then for Christians to go, well, when I come to something like that, to the city on a hill phrase, Do I come with a lot of ideas about American superiority that I just imbue into that passage without even really thinking about it? There's not a list of hermeneutical steps that I'm taking. I just live in that water. And so I come to it with those kind Mm -hmm. of associations. But it's interesting that you say it that way about scriptural literacy, because if anything has changed in American history, it's not that we use the Bible more or less in our political life. It's that we use less and less obscure passages as time goes on (laughs) because we can't assume that people know them. So like during the Revolutionary War, it was common to talk about the curse of Miraz, which is from Deborah's song, 
and it's like such an obscure reference today. People would be like, what do you mean the curse of Miraz? But at the time, people knew it well enough to know that the curse of Miraz is directed against a people that are not fighting with Israel. So if you were not for the Revolutionary War, you might say the curse of Miraz against you. Like you're not coming to our aid. You're not helping us. So I do think a lot of it has to do with we just we don't spend a lot of time in scripture anymore especially across the whole canon and i think that not only affects mm-hmm. our ability to see when scripture is used or misused in our political life it still is used a lot i mean it was kind of a big deal when recently biden referenced isaiah here i am lord send me talking about american soldiers you know so that's something we might want to ask some questions about but when we're not well enough acquainted with where it comes from and what the context is, we could be really kind of just brought along with this idea because we think, oh, I love that the Bible is being used, like, yay, my Christian team. Or we might think, Mm -hmm. I'm actually hungry for a sense of transcendence and real meaning in our common life together. And so when someone uses scripture, like, yes, that meets a need that I feel, whether Christian or not, I want to believe that our common life together is shaped by something deeper and richer and older than just what's happening now. So I love that kind of language that sounds, especially if it's King James, you know, Mm -hmm. this old sounding language that feels really enticing. But do we know scripture well enough to judge if that's a faithful use or not? And then do we have a sense of our political lives in general being shaped not just by kind of whatever we inherit as the Christian approach to politics, but a whole kind of reading of scripture across the canon? Does the Old Testament and the New Testament do different genres, different voices play some part in how I think about the nature of government and human authority, my responsibility to my neighbors, what faithfulness looks like for a nation that isn't Israel or for a group of people that isn't the church? Like we have great resources throughout scripture, but often when I tell people I was writing about, you know, the Bible and politics, they go, oh, so Romans 13, that's, you know, that kind of covers it. Not knowing that Not only do I have a lot to say about Romans 13, but also there's so much across the whole canon. We should be reading, as we've been talking about, we should be reading this as one large story. It tells us not only in places where it's explicitly talking about government, but what does scripture tell us about the nature of human communities and what God intends for them that we might apply to our political life. It might be really messy to apply it. We can't just kind of pluck a verse out of its context and say, okay, here's the policy that must follow from that. But it also doesn't mean that our fear of that shouldn't keep us from saying, I actually do want the authority of scripture to shape my public life, including, you know, the specifically political things that I do. But it will take a lot more work than just going to a concordance and saying, like, where's government in here? It will require us spending a lot of time across the canon in community, discerning together what the word of the Lord says to us here and now. Yeah, and I think your caution from earlier about paying attention to what you're consuming and how much you're consuming. I often think about as we do these podcasts and as the center recommends resources, books and articles and things like that, I know what it's like to be on the other side. And it's like, oh my gosh, another thing to listen to, another thing to read, another thing to pay attention to. So I think we need to learn to be a culture of subtraction, that we need to figure out what do we need to set aside so that we can make room because you're right, it's so messy. And going back to our earlier conversation about context, right? Like someone listening to this has a vastly different context than maybe anything that I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to take some time and energy for them to incorporate this in. So thinking about how do we reduce our energy output in some other ways in order to be able to do the kind of really critical thinking that needs to happen, I think is so important. And I'm curious, as we've been talking about this and talking about community, the idea of leadership and just kind of top-down leadership versus communal shaping and development. 
how would you encourage leaders listening to this? How can they move to a place where they're involving the community more in the kind of formation and shaping that you're talking about? Because I think that's such a critical component that it's not just just because you teach somebody one thing once, they're just going to grab it and run with it. But how does a community learn to develop together this whole tapestry of what you're talking about with the liturgy of politics? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing would be really making yourself open to the resources of the other people in your congregation in terms of there probably are people who do more research than the average person on like the local elections or the local political issues. There probably are people who, I mean, depending on the size of your congregation, there probably are people who this is their work. Like this is the vocation that they take on, whether it's in local government in some capacity, whether it's in education all of the varieties of policies that we're asking about don't just require the expertise of people who think about policy. It requires the expertise of people who actually are involved in that area, whether it's someone who is a landlord or someone who is involved in a homelessness ministry or, you know, a nonprofit or someone who's really, you know, is a public school teacher and isn't an expert on education policy, but they care really deeply about public education. So kind of broadening our sense of politics also means broadening our sense of who is a quote unquote expert in a lot of this stuff and asking who really has a great stake in this. Like, it's not just who spends a lot of time reading news articles about this, but like whose kids are impacted by the public school system in our area or who in our congregation is most impacted by food prices or by, you know, the different forms of social safety net that we have available or who not only knows a lot about this because they're an expert, but who has a lot of stake in this and should be involved in conversations about it. So I think that's a huge thing because it's great. I love when pastors become really interested in, okay, I want my sermons when we get to the point in the text where there is some obviously political in this broader sense implication. I want to talk about it. I think that's great. What would also be great is going okay, I've come to this passage that talks about how nations are judged by how they treat foreigners. Maybe I'm in Genesis. Is there someone in my congregation that has an experience with immigration or who works for a nonprofit or has some knowledge of immigration policy? Not that I'm going to, from the pulpit, say, here's the person you should vote for, here's the policy you should support. But my expertise as someone who studies scripture, how could that be added to by someone who has expertise either in policy or in firsthand experience of the immigration system or something, you know, you could apply that to a lot of policy issues, but opening yourself up to the expertise and firsthand experience of different people. Mm-hmm. And then I think it goes back to what I said before about asking yourself if there are opportunities in the church that you have regularly for people to interact across a variety of differences. And some of this is not just about kind of how you receive the input of other people, but are you putting people in the right conditions to learn from each other in situations that they might not otherwise have with people that they might otherwise be able to avoid? That's the kind of thing where it's not just, you know, how does the leadership have access to those kinds of things or how do they share responsibility with people? It's also maybe someone in your church will be in this strange position of leadership in your community to make a decision about something. And because they sat across at a potluck from someone who has firsthand experience with this or who has studied this policy, there's a connection made there. And that to me, like that's a picture of a church that is for the life of their community, not just in kind of obvious outward ways of we show up and we serve, or we even come to a city council meeting or people write letters to an elected official. But just the fact that we build community where someone who has the authority to make a change knows someone who's affected by that change, 
there are very few opportunities institutionally, socially in our country today where that could ever happen in a context that isn't explicitly partisan, where it's not we're at a city council meeting and the person who has authority and the person who has the need are in the same room. No, they were in the same room because they were at a potluck together. Like that's an incredible opportunity for the church to be serving the community. That's such a great point. Such a great point. One question I had as we head into another election season, what advice do you give pastors who are daunted by the topic of politics right now? I love that. I do think that's really, really important. And as Matt was saying, I just think one important thing as early as you can start thinking about it. Too often, Mm -hmm. it's right before an election. And I've done this a lot where pastors will be like, please come to my church and fix everything in like October Mm -hmm. (laughs) or November, like right before the election. And I really do think this is the kind of work that a four-week Sunday school curriculum can't fix. It could be good. It could be really useful to prompt some conversations. I do think this is much longer haul work. And even if you find yourself in a place right before the election, I think even just having that mindset shift of going, I'm not trying to just fix things for this election. It could be really messy. There could be a lot of conflict that comes to the surface. Maybe for this election, it is just a ride through it. And while I'm here gathering data about what people are saying, how they're responding, that should feed into, okay, for the whole next year, for the next five years, the next 10 years, like what would it look like for us to really thoughtfully prepare ourselves. And and honestly, what I have found is if I show up on a Tuesday night at a church and they're like, let's talk about politics, people come with like ready to fight with walls up. Like we know, I know what you believe, you know what I believe. If we are six weeks into a Bible study on Jeremiah and Jeremiah is talking about economic injustice and there's a protest in our city about something at the same time, that's like Holy Spirit ordained perfect moment to have a conversation Mm -hmm. in a context that is low temperature where we have some shared ground because we all care about scripture. We might be reading it differently. We might have different opinions about it, but we're at least here together at this space trying to interpret this well together. Whatever you can do to facilitate a more organic, a more thoughtful way of doing this. It might be that your small group leaders need to do a four or six week curriculum on this to kind of gain some basic theological language for talking about it. But I think more than having a whole congregation do that, which can be really good. Don't think that I'm saying that's not good. It can be really good, but having it be more organic, having it be more low temperature can make a huge difference. And in terms of just how a pastor themselves could prepare, I really do think spending some time evaluating what kind of spiritual disciplines might be required for this season. How do I get quiet? How do I have the kind of inner resilience and kind of stability to withstand some difficult conversations? For you personally, that might be really important. And one of the things I have found like just individually that is so helpful is if I even have five or 10 minutes after a conversation that was a kind of political, sometimes even partisan, really challenging conversation, if I just have five or 10 minutes afterwards to spend some time evaluating Where was I the most heated? Where did I feel the most confronted? What kind of identity or community did I feel threatened by? You know, what things really poked me the most? And how could I then take that information into my general spiritual life and say, okay, what I learned in that conversation was when the idea that I am not a good person comes up, that gets me. (laughs) Like that means the conversation is going to go really poorly because that was threatened okay, that's not just a political issue. That's not just a, how do I have better political conversations issue? That's a, do I have a strong sense of identity in Christ? Or is it really shaped by what mm-hmm. other people think of me? And these characteristics matter the most to me. Okay, that's 
that's something you bring into a conversation with a spiritual director. That's something that you think about more broadly in your scripture reading and your regular habits and spiritual disciplines. And I think having that approach of, I do a debrief with myself after those kinds of conversations Mm -hmm. beforehand, if you can, but I have found most of those conversations you don't see (laughs) coming. Can I do a debrief Mm -hmm. afterwards? Can the focus be less on, okay, how do I take that information to the next political conversation? But instead, how do I take that information to my spiritual life? What kind of person do I need to be to be the best person to have this conversation with someone? That's super helpful because I think sometimes you can remain in the rage. You can walk away from it and say, well, that was just isolated to that right. situation and not take the moment to say, okay, what was actually going on inside and why? So I think that's super helpful. Awesome. Well, Caitlin, as we come to the end of our time here, where can folks follow you and find out more about you and follow your work? Yeah, I am on Twitter, whatever it becomes, <laughs> and Instagram at Caitlin Chess. And if you go to CaitlinChess.com, you can see the two books that I've written, but also I have some resources up there that I think are better than the books, honestly, that are an audit for your social media consumption and some prayers and kind of habits and practices for an election season, which is crazy that I wrote them for the last one and we're already coming up on the new <laughs> one. But I do think that that can be a really helpful way for a family or a church or you know a group of people that want to be intentional about the election to find some prayers to pray together, find some habits to be in to prepare spiritually, not just kind of cognitively for the next mm-hmm. election. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And if you're listening to this for the end of August, make sure to check out the ballot in the Bible. I think you can pre-order. Yes. Mm-hmm. At this point. And if it's after August, you can just get a copy. So make sure to check that out. And Caitlin, we'll make sure to post all of that information that you just shared in our show notes. Thank you. And I just want to appreciate and thank you, Caitlin, for the work that you're doing. Your voice is such an incredibly important Mm -hmm. voice in our culture Mm -hmm. right now. So keep doing the work that you're doing. I wish we had four hours for this conversation (laughs) just to sit and chat. And I look forward to listening to you more on the Holy Post and seeing more of your work, but keep it going. This is so important for our culture. And just a shout out to about this topic, you know, don't wait till it's election season. I mean, we're kind of quickly approaching it anyway. Mm -hmm. So maybe by the time you're listening to this, it might already be in full swing. And be thinking about this as something in the life of your congregation moving forward, that this is not just about elections and election season. This is about living well within the communities in which you are a part. So thank you again, Caitlin, for your work. I very much appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. That was our interview with Caitlin Shess. Abby, what are some things that stood out to you from our conversation with Caitlin? First and foremost, I think it's important to note that she is very smart. (laughs) Yes, she is. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot that she offers to the faith community about navigating these challenges. I think one of the primary things, like I said in the intro, just the practicality of what it looks like to walk with congregations through the realm of politics, how to think deeply about what you believe and how that affects how you interact with the world around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that practical aspect of it. And what I was going to say, what stood out to me was just the, not redefinition, but the appropriate labeling of partisan politics versus what politics is in general Mm -hmm. and just how a congregational community, if the idea of politics is understood correctly, you can go back to the drawing board and create your own politics within your community 
that can be separated from the partisan politics that we get stuck in from media. And it was just a refreshing idea to think about diving back into your congregational community and having conversations with the people in that and thinking about like, you know, this has to do with how we treat each other Mm -hmm. and how we treat people in our community. So how do we think about it from that lens rather than thinking about it from who the presidential nominee or who the presidential candidate is? Yeah, another element that I think was encouraging, especially for those who may be overwhelmed by the topic or burn out by the topic, it's the, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Mm. And it seemed less overwhelming how she presented the topic. And so that was encouraging to me and I think would be encouraging to others as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the idea that it's never too early or even too late to begin thinking about liturgy and politics in a different fashion. Hopefully you're listening to this in 2023 around its release date. And if you're not, that's okay. But we're not quite heavy into the political season quite yet. And now's a fantastic time to begin thinking about how can I teach? How can I communicate? How can I preach? How can I lead small groups around this idea so that when or as things get more polarized approaching a general election, we've got a way to handle it, a way to talk about it, a way to deal with it. And so just the admonishment to really get into this as soon as possible and just maintain it. Yeah, I think one of the things that Caitlin offered in this conversation was that this is not a four-part series discussion. This is something that's lived out over a long period of time. This is something that is discovered over a long period of time within community. And so with that in mind, we move forward. Yeah. And as so many topics are, I think, you know, we want to kind of solve a problem and then move on to the next problem. But I think we forget sometimes that there are some issues that have to be built into the rhythms and the life of the community. Mm -hmm. And so how do we think about politics from the standpoint that she defined it and think about weaving that into our understanding of our community, of the people who come and are a part of our congregations? Because it does need to be part of the rhythm of who you are as an organization or as a congregation. Mm -hmm. And we legitimately could have talked to her for hours. Just such a great conversation. Maybe someday, Abby, will be a podcast that provides a lengthier interview for the people who sign up. (laughs) But we're not that podcast yet. (laughs) (laughs) But that is okay. All right. Well, hey, let's move on to resources. So, Abby, what resource or resources do you have that you think would be helpful for congregational leaders around this topic? There's this book called Hijacked. Subtitle is Responding to the Partisan Church Divide. And it is an older book, but it stands the test of time and it has good advice for navigating division and church around politics. So I think this would be a good one for our listeners who are interested in the topic. What about you, Matt? So I want to bring an organization called the Colossian Forum. I had the pleasure of meeting and working with some of their folks a while back. And actually, they did an ed event with us. But I've been a big fan of their organization, and they've kind of evolved over the last couple of years. And they started out as an organization that essentially specifically focused on divisive topics like science and faith, politics, and I think there was one or two others. But since they've kind of expanded their work to essentially be an organization that tries to help people learn how to talk about divisive topics in a way that brings understanding and brings more unity and togetherness. And not even necessarily everybody agreeing with one another, but being a safe space to be able to have divisive conversations. Mm -hmm. So the organization, they offer what they call Wayfinder training, 
which is basically training Christian leaders how to transform conflict. They also have something called the Colossian Way about how to lead through conflict. They have very specific curricula around young earth creationism versus evolution. They've got political talk, sexuality, women and men. So just some very specific curricula on some very specific divisive topics. But I have just found that the way that they view their work and take seriously divisiveness in congregational life, they'd be a great resource, especially and specifically for any Christian congregation. We're also going to list Caitlin's resources in the show notes. So links to her book, her website, and places where you can find and hear more about her work. And again, the Holy Post podcast. I mean, you know, we know that you want this to be your main podcast. You know, you always want to be here with us primarily. But if you're going to get a secondary podcast, check out the Holy Post podcast. (laughs) Caitlin is often (laughs) on that. And it's just a great conversation, especially if you are a conservative congregational leader or maybe grew up in more conservative theological spaces. The Holy Post is a great place where they take very seriously being conservative theologians, but thinking about it critically as we engage with culture. So check that out. Speaking of resources, if you're looking for other resources also on politics or other topics, I would recommend looking at the CRG, that's T-H-E-C-R-G.org. There are a lot of resources that have been curated for congregations related, like I said, to politics and a number of other topics such as mental health. So go check it out. Also, if you enjoy what we do here and you think it's helpful for folks, make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that be Apple, Spotify, apparently Stitcher went away or is going away. So if you're listening to us on Stitcher, you can find us somewhere else, but make sure to rate and review us, follow us. And this is going to help other people find the podcast. It's going to boost us in the algorithms. I don't even really know what that phrase means. I just say it because other podcasters say it. So I guess it helps other people find who we are. It is a real thing. So whatever it is. Yeah, they say Bitcoin is too, but I don't know. I have my doubts. But is there proof? (laughs) We'd also love to hear from you. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We would love to hear your thoughts on our episodes. If you have ideas for topics or speakers for the future, or just want to say hello, you can reach us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. And we'd like to thank the Lilly Endowment for their generous support that makes this possible. We also want to mention our engineer and editor, Jaden Lee, who keeps us sounding amazing. And we also want to do our geographical shout out for this episode. And based on the topic, we want to say hello to, and by the way, we do actually verify listeners from these areas that we mentioned in the geographical shout out. We want to say hello to those people listening in the District of Columbia. Yes, indeed, we have people listening in Washington, D.C. So thanks for listening. Appreciate you being out there. So that'll do it for this episode for the Center for Congregations. I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Abby Miller. We'll talk to you later.